So this morning, I invite you to stand as we turn to God's Word. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one is to, ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, and taken up into glory. Father, we come to you this morning and we want to hear your word because we need your word. What we need is you. Lord, would you just fill our hearts and minds with a vision of you and your glory? Would we, for a moment, get our eyes off ourselves, off the things of this world, and onto you? I pray these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. When we consider missions, we want to consider this morning... What is at the heart of missions? The missionary task at its core is to confess Christ together before the world. It's that simple. The heart of the missionary task is to confess Christ together before the world. And this task is at the heart of who we are as God's people. It's at the heart of all of us. It's not a special task that you send special people to do. It's the task that we do because we are God's people and that is key in, in, at the heart of our identity. And that's because all we have is Christ. All we have is Christ. Now, to some, that can, that can feel trite. We feel like we should do more. <laughs> we, should, we should do more things. We should be more... Um, more, more focused on how we're going to go about this. And those are important things, but it's very easy to lose sight of our purpose, especially in our world. I don't know if you've ever been in an argument and you were fighting and you were fighting and you were fighting and at some point you realize you could not even remember what you were fighting about. You, know, you get so just caught up in the um, emotions and the circulating arguments that you forgot what the even purpose of your, of your fight was. I think that's true for a lot of areas in our lives, especially in our culture. We are here to confess Christ. And God has called His church to do this task together. And He has not called the, the best and the brightest of us to do this. He's actually called the weakest of us. My daughter, you saw in that picture, uh, has special needs. And she can do very little for herself. And yet, in many ways, she's had the greatest witness of all of us in our family. She's opened up more opportunities for us to be able to share the gospel with more people. We would never have that opportunity than anybody else I know. It's amazing what God does through grace. But it's not through Grace's strength, it's actually through her weakness. If, if God had not uh, brought her to this place, she would not have that privilege. And it is a privilege for her. And it's a privilege for us to see God's grace through her. We don't need to be much 
In fact, God doesn't use those who are much. He works like this to show the world who He is by contrast to who we are. I am not much, but God is much. I, I, am not, I don't have this all together, but God does have it all together. We confess as Christ, and this is the confession of our lives. This is who we are. In 1 Timothy, Paul begins by instructing him to guard the doctrine of the church. And he, he wants him to guard the doctrine, not because the doctrine can save you, but because Christ can save you, and the doctrine reliably points us to Christ. Paul wants everything that is taught to focus on transformation from the inside out that leads us to pure hearts and good consciences and sincere faith. And that has to have us look to Christ. In, in, this, in this church that Timothy was serving in, there were these what Paul calls vain discussions. And in this case, it was about the law. And the law is good... The law is good, but the law is meant to show us that we are not good. That is what the law was meant for. It shows us that we are ungodly. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, that by works of the law, no human being shall be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so the law, just like us, is meant to turn eyes from itself and onto Christ. Because even though the law cannot save anyone, Christ has come to save His people. The law cannot produce a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, but Christ does. Jesus came to save sinners. The law came to show us we are sinners. And so our attention and our energies should be on Jesus Christ. And Paul points to himself as the greatest example of this. Paul was a Pharisee who at that time were the greatest keeper of the law. He was a rising star in the Pharisee world. And yet, Paul says, I was the worst of all sinners. Right? The greatest of the keepers of the law, and yet I was the worst of all sinners. Why? So that he could be an example for those who would come to Christ. An example of what? Of the worst of all sinners coming to Christ. Through Paul's weakness, God shows his glorious strength. This is the warfare that we fight as God's people. This is the battle to point hearts back to Christ, to confess that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So in chapter 2, Paul then turns to the practical outworkings of this in the church. This is a task for the whole church, not, not just Timothy. Paul didn't send Timothy to represent God by himself. He did not send Timothy to guard the doctrine so that Timothy could brand himself so that Timothy could podcast himself and platform himself. Not that those things are evil things, but that's not why Timothy exists, and that's not where the power of the gospel lies. Paul was sent to see the whole church engaging in confessing Christ openly. That's why we pray for our leaders, Paul says, because we want them to to give us um, uh, an environment by which we can profess Christ openly. We can live peaceful and quiet lives because we are here to point others to Christ. And in chapter 3, verse 14, Paul then points to the purpose of this godly life that we live as God's people together. Right? It's a purpose 
um, that is evangelistic. Right? If it's legalistic, it points to us. But if it's evangelistic, we're drawing attention to Jesus. And Paul explains why this is in the next few verses. He begins in verse 14 by saying to Timothy, in a very personal note, he kind of pauses in what he's saying, and he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one is to behave in the household of God. I want us just to consider for a moment what the household of God implies. When he says that the church is God's household, it implies, first of all, identity and belonging. This is where our identity lies. It's in the household of God. We have no need to look elsewhere to other things to find identity. And, and we don't define ourselves. Right? That's in major contrast to our culture today. Our culture says that we can define ourselves and create ourselves. God creates us. God defines who we are. He shapes our identity, not our culture, not our inner feelings and desires. We find out who we are when we find out who God is. Because God defines us. We are a reflection of Him, not the source. Household also implies responsibility and loyalty and purpose. The church is not a swarm of individuals uh, who are living lives and assisting one another when it's mutually beneficial to our individual purposes. We are, Peter will say in, in 1 Peter, we are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. A stone who is part of a house cannot perform the function of a house by itself. It's only when we are together doing our work together before God that we begin to realize what we do. We belong to God and we have a responsibility and a loyalty to His household. We cannot be loyal to God and disloyal to His household. Household also implies authority. If this is God's household, we are under God's roof. We are not the head. God is the head. This has major implications to how we live our life, doesn't it? To why we live our lives. Paul then turns to the purpose of all of this. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one is to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. So like a pillar upholds and supports a structure, so the church upholds the truth about God to this world. Without the church, knowledge of God will crumble under the weight of our depraved hearts. Because at the heart of our sin is a desire to suppress the truth about God. Peter says that in Romans 3.18. Romans 1.18. It is the church that God has designed to reveal the truth about Himself in the midst of this opposition. I already shared with you Ephesians 3.10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be displayed to the universe. Then Paul turns his attention to the confession of this truth. So what is this truth that we are confessing? It says, great indeed we confess is this mystery of godliness. What is this mystery of godliness? You know what it is? It's Jesus Christ. Just Jesus Christ and his gospel. That's it. Great indeed we confess 
is this mystery of godliness. By the way, confession is just what we say to be true with our words and with our lives. What do we proclaim to be true with our words and our lives? What is it we confess? You know, if you know someone who you think is godly, if that is true, it is true because of Jesus Christ. In fact, if their godliness does not draw your attention to Jesus, it is idolatry. We are here to confess Jesus together. And this hymn is the early church is for that. He begins by saying he was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit. These two phrases have to do with Jesus' appearance. His life was first manifested when he appeared and then at the end of his life he was vindicated when death could not hold him. God first appeared to us so that we could see him. It's amazing that the creator of the universe, the very one who spoke all this into existence, who exists for infinitely more than all this, entered into it. And it's amazing when you think that Jesus was not alone when he did this. He was not unfulfilled. He was not seeking something he didn't have. Right? He was joy-filled and he was joy-giving. He was loving and he was loved. He was accepting and he was accepted. He was fulfilling and he was fulfilling. He was worshipped. And then he left all that to identify with the brokenness of you and me. That's amazing. Jesus is not like us. We would never have done that. He experienced our frailties. Maybe you're feeling frail right now this morning and you feel that you don't have much to give. You know what? That's probably true. But that means you're in a good place. Because Jesus loves to use the broken and the weak of this world. And sometimes where the biggest problem is when actually we feel like we're strong. Consider Jesus for a moment as he's at Gethsemane. He's about to go to the cross and he's emotionally struggling so much that he's sweating blood. He says, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will but yours be done. What is Jesus saying at this moment? But I don't want to do this. I don't feel like obeying. But I trust your will more than anything else. And Jesus went to the cross. But then he was vindicated by the Spirit. And this just means that Jesus was vindicated when he rose from the dead. This is proof that Jesus was truly from God. He was truly righteous, and because he was truly righteous, death could not hold him. He appeared in the flesh, but by rising from the dead, he was shown to be more than mere flesh. He was truly the Son of God. And my friend, you know what this does for us? It means that all of the suffering that you're facing, all the struggles that you are doing to struggle through and have faith in Christ through, Jesus made all of that worth it. He made all of it worth it. My grandmother, I saw recently, you know, when she was young, she was physically strong. <laughs> and she was also kind of, um, well, I'll just say this, she, she used to be the one who would jump out of holes to scare people. <laughs> that was my grandma. When I saw her, she was so weak. She's 93 frail she can do almost nothing for herself and I was kind of struggling with that and as she's sitting there frail and weak she starts singing heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace I want to see my savior's face and that faith 
in her weakness just had a major effect on me. I needed her faith. Faith that she couldn't have done if she wasn't weak. God has called her to suffer at the end of her life for a reason. For us. Maybe you're in that place. Maybe you're struggling with jealousy of people who have more gifts. Consider Christ. Consider Christ. We need your faith. Jesus was seen by angels and he was proclaimed in the nations. This is that, just saying that Jesus was witnessed after his life. This is the witness of Christ's life and resurrection to the world and to the universe. Because Jesus' life was vindicated, he is the Savior of all who will put their hope and trust in him. He was seen in the heavenly realms and he was proclaimed in the earthly realms, but in both realms, Jesus is the focus. He is what we are proclaiming. We must take care of what we confess. What we confess with our mouth and what we confess with the choices of our life. And finally, we confess that Jesus was victorious. He was believed in the world and he was taken up into glory. And this is the confession of our life. This is the heart of why we exist. To confess Jesus to one another through the life that he's given us. He's given us different paths in life to together confess that we have faith in no one else and nothing else than Jesus. If you've been given riches in this world, those riches were given to you to confess Christ. If you've been called to suffer, that suffering is for you to confess Christ. And that binds us together as God's people. That binds us together as God's people. The very thing we are tempted often to despise is the very thing that God is using to fulfill His purpose in us. You don't need to know how all the pieces fit in your life at the end. But like Jesus, what you need is to trust your Heavenly Father. And as we see each other do that, we will be raised up to do this. This is a family task. And we need to do this together. We need one another to point each other to Christ. That is all that we do in missions. That's it. It's just about Jesus Christ. I want to read a quote from a theologian as we close. He says, My confidence on the last day will not rest in my transformation. I have too far to go to put any confidence in what I have accomplished. Indeed, I rest on Jesus Christ. He is my righteousness. He is the guarantor of my salvation. I am justified by faith alone in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. And then he speaks of this faith. And this faith is not mere mental assent, but a heartfelt embrace of Jesus Christ as its all-satisfying treasure. So let's embrace Christ together as our all-satisfying treasure and all that we have. Let's pray. Your Father in heaven, we thank you for sending Jesus to us. We don't deserve him. We would never have done what Jesus did. But we're so grateful for him. We're so grateful to be part of the ministries that you've put in our lives. Would you help us to be faithful? And would that faith confess your worth? Because you are indeed worthy. And Father, as we come to to a time where we give our offering. 
would this offering also confess you. Father, we don't give offerings in churches to be righteous. We give them to confess your worth and your value. And I pray that you would bless that this morning.